Our uh, sermon text for today is Psalm 29. Grant to the Lord, O sons of God, grant to the Lord glory and strength. Grant to the Lord his name's glory. Bow to the Lord in holy majesty. The Lord's voice is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord is over the mighty waters. The Lord's voice in power. The Lord's voice in majesty. The Lord's voice breaking cedars. The Lord shatters the Lebanon cedars. He makes Lebanon dance like a calf. Syrian like a young wild ox. The Lord's voice hews flames of fire. The Lord's voice makes the wilderness shake. The Lord makes the Kadesh wilderness shake. The Lord's voice brings on the birth pangs of does and lays bare the forest. And in his palace, all says glory. The Lord was enthroned at the flood and the Lord enthroned as a king for all times. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Uh, So today uh, I want to continue the sermon series I've been doing on the Psalms. Uh, As you may know, the Psalms were a key component of Israelite worship and actually the uh, book of the Old Testament that the New Testament quotes the most often. And yet, I think that we've ignored uh, the Psalms mostly in our modern church. Uh, When we do think of them, we view them as uh, mere ornamentation, uh, a bit of pretty poetry or uh, song perhaps, but they're rarely studied as a serious work in themselves. And so part of what I want to do is bring back the Psalms because I think that they can inject some much needed dynamism into our worship our spiritual lives, and our theology. The Psalms are awe-inspiring. They're questioning. They're doubting. They're daring. And they're even frustrating at times. They can actually make you angry. They are at times beautiful. They're at times sad. They're at times hopeful. And at times they're dark. And, you know, I think that that's important because guess what? So are our own lives. And that's why I think that we need to read and embrace the Psalms. Now, one of the goals of the sermons I've been uh, presenting on the Psalms is to teach us to be better readers of the Psalms. Because here's the thing, poetry is hard. It's not something natural or normal for us, and and ancient poetry is even harder. Um, But in order to help us uh, to become better readers, I've uh, followed an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. And he's divided the Psalms into three categories. Uh, Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, and uh, a third category, Psalms of reorientation. And so we've been working through these categories. We've looked at the uh, examples from the first two categories. And so today, what I want us to do is bring an example of this third category, reorientation. And so by reorientation, we mean a Psalm that explores a new state of affairs that we find ourselves in after experiencing a time of disorientation, okay? So reorientation, uh, the key here is it's not just a, it's not merely a return to a prior state. 
It's an advancement. It's uh, when we move beyond what we previously had thought was possible. It's a new wisdom. Uh, it's a new mindset. It often comes after a period of despair or hardship. So if we think about the times in our lives when we've uh, confronted uh, an obstacle or we've gone through something difficult and we've emerged through that, uh, that new wisdom that we've gained from that, that new mentality, that's what we're talking about in a psalm of orientation. Uh, it results from hard experience. Uh, the newness that results from it, it is not something we may have expected. Sometimes it's surprising. And it often, uh, in the Psalms anyway, leads to praise and thanksgiving, to joy and awe. Think of it as the light, the light that shines after a period of darkness, that joy that we experience after despair when we thought maybe it's not possible to be joyful again. And it is God and the blessing over that prevails over these dark forces of depression and hopelessness uh, that we experience in the reorientation. Now, I'm purposely using this uh, almost like a, an over-the-top, almost exciting, dynamic language as I described it, because that's the kind of mentality we have to have when we read these psalms. You know, part of the problem that when we read the Psalms uh, is, is that we read them flatly. Um, we, we want to um, uh, kind of brush past the imagery. We want to just quickly distill it to get to like the point, you know. That, that's, the, that's the big mistake we often make in poetry. We're just like, oh yeah, yeah, it's just a bunch of pretty uh, uh, rhetoric, pretty imagery, but what's the point? What is it trying to say? You know, but we don't need to do that. That's the whole point of poetry is that we uh, get involved uh, emotionally uh, even we we experience it. Uh, we don't just read past it. We meditate on it. Yes, uh, we reflect on it, and we also feel it. The Psalms are meant to move us, because that's the point of poetry. Um, we don't experience poetry that much. I mean, you, you learn it, you know, to a degree in school. But I think all of us can uh, can kind of relate uh, the the way we experience poetry i think the most is a culture is through music okay so when we're listening to a, a a song you know a song that particularly moves us or something like that that's what what i'm talking about here um so you know if poetry seems a little too much like uh, high school uh or middle school and you, you you flash back and you have like terrible memories of trying to understand the symbolism of oh captain my captain don't don't go there you know more think about like when you've been particularly captured by a song uh, that, that means something to you at different times in your life, you know, particularly one that's moved you or, or something like that. that. That's what we're supposed to experience here. Um, so with that in mind, let us look at this psalm, Psalm 29. So we begin in the first verse. Uh, a lot of the translations say ascribe to the Lord. This one I read says grant to the Lord. And it says, O sons of God. So it's the sons of God that are commanded to ascribe to the Lord. Now, right at the beginning, that's something kind of weird. Uh, this order to ascribe to the Lord is addressed to the sons of God. Now, sons of God is actually a term for divine beings. Okay? Uh, those were the, 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 the divine beings that live in the heavenly uh, throne room of God. 
Um, it says the guys are like angels. Okay, so, so what we're seeing here is the heavenly court. Uh, so right at the beginning of this psalm, uh, it wants us to understand that we are not dealing with the earthly realm, but this is the divine realm. We're in a foreign place. We're outside of, you know, even things we can imagine. Uh, instead, uh, we are in the divine realm uh, where we are uh, uh, not so much uh, where we're spectators. You know, we may be, uh, when we hear this psalm, you know, right now, we may be worshiping God, uh, but we are really merely imitating a greater, more glorious scene that is taking place in heaven itself. And I think it's important that we, you know, I belabor this point a little bit because we are meant to be a little awed by this, you know. Like I said, this is, this is meant to capture our imagination. Uh, what this psalm is trying to do is give us uh, an otherworldly, an alien, a transcendental experience uh, because we are peering, you know, right into the heart of the uh, functioning of the cosmos here, you know. So, um Let's get, uh, you know, recover a little bit of that weirdness uh, about this. Uh, This psalm is transporting to a place that's bigger than ourselves. And we're being invited into this world of sacredness and holiness that is mind-blowing. It's more mind-blowing than we can possibly realize. Um, And we should get that feeling of a place of great importance that that normally would be off limits to us, but that we're being invited into. Uh, This is a special invitation where we experience the world in a completely new and different way. It's kind of like being on a mountaintop and seeing the world uh, uh, fresh. You know, all of these feelings of awe and wonder should come to us. Uh, I don't know about you. I'm a big fan of... um, you know, just astronomy. Who's 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 uh, really into like the James Webb Space Telescope? I'm like totally into this thing. Yeah, I mean, like I love. Ha- have you all seen these pictures from this? Yes, it's amazing. And that I think that's the kind of idea that we're supposed to have here is we're being. You know, so so I'm trying to give us some uh, frame for like really feeling this song. So. This heavenly court here is uh, is ascribing to the Lord glory and strength, and and this word ascribe means to give or grant. It's a, it's a very formal word. It's not the kind of word you would use in everyday language. It's, it's meant to be used in a ceremonial way. Um, so we're supposed to again being transported into this like this place, this scene of just like great and reverent importance. Um, but why are these beings, these heavenly beings, uh, being called to ascribe glory to the Lord? And that is the question that the verse, verses 3 through 9 are answering for us. And what this psalm does is it basically provides three examples of places where the Lord has demonstrated his power and has emerged victorious. It is the victory won at these three places that demands that all of the universe ascribe glory and strength to the Lord. So let's start by looking at verses 3 and 4. And here we are told that the Lord is over the mighty waters. Now, the imagery given here is of like thunderstorms and the raging sea. And if you remember, I've, I've said this before, in the ancient world, storms and seas represent chaos. This is, they're like bad, you know. This is like 
tornadoes and hurricanes kind of thing, right? We're not talking about a placid lake or the beach on a, you know, a nice day. Uh, and, and think about the world that these people lived in. They were much more exposed to the weather than us. And the structures that they lived in, you know, were not really like hurricane rated, right? Like, you know, uh, so the raging sea or a bad thunderstorm was absolutely terrifying. Uh, you couldn't imagine anything uh, more threatening. And, you know, the, the thing about this image and the thing I think we need to keep in mind, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, for them, this danger is not really like theoretical or abstract. You know, they had all experienced like a really bad storm at some time in their life. And they were probably like scared. You know, you think about it. I mean, wind, rain, thunder, lightning, all of that would have been terrifying. You know, you can imagine like I would imagine people would sit around and they would have conversations like, oh, man, you should have seen that you know, storm last week, you know, I thought it was just gonna, it was gonna destroy everything. And, you know, the old guy sitting there going, well, that's nothing compared to the storm of, you know, 2330 BC or whatever, you know, that, that I lived through, you know, it would have been like a big topic of conversation of debate because, uh, it would have been, had such an impact on their life. Um, but in verse three, we read that the Lord triumphs over the waters. And I, and I like the, the phrasing here. It says the God of glory thunders, you know, thunders. And, you know, notice it's God that's thundering here, not the storm. It's as if, if God's using the storm's own weapon, the thunder against it, you know, beating it with its own uh, uh, sword. Um, and the uh, Lord achieves this victory, not even through force, but simply through his voice. And, you know, if you, if you heard this psalm and you read, uh, you know, that repetition, you heard the repetition as we read that aloud, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, it, it keeps coming, uh, hitting you over, over and over again. You know, you would have instantly thought about uh, creation. You know, when God uh, spoke creation into existence, ordering and filling the primeval chaos when the earth was void and without form, you know, back in Genesis 1, uh, you know, in the beginning, uh, the Lord is over the chaotic and dark forces of creation. Remember Genesis 1-2 talks about the spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters, you know. That's the idea that we're having here. Uh, this power and majesty or characteristics of the Lord's voice, which defeat even the mighty waters, you know, the mighty waters here. It sounds so much better in Hebrew, Ma'im uh, Rivim, okay? Uh, it, 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 it's, um, it's the word Ravim here can mean many or great. So, you know, it doesn't matter if we're talking about quality or quantity of these waters, both are subor subordinate to the Lord. And so that's uh, the first couple of verses. Now we move to verses five and six, where we're transported to a different scene. Now we are among the cedars of Lebanon, okay? Where again, the Lord uh, demonstrates his dominance. Now, let me tell you uh, a, a little bit about what this uh, image would have meant. So first of all, it would have been kind of an exotic locale. Okay, uh, it was a very real place. Okay, so the, the, the forests of Lebanon with their, their great cedars was a very real place. So it was something you could have gone to, although it would have been really hard to get to. Okay, it would have been quite the journey. But, um, you know, surely there were merchants and travelers that came by and they probably told stories about this place. Um, you know, the temple in Jerusalem 
uh, was made uh, in part from these cedars uh, from the great forests of Lebanon. They were famed throughout the ancient world. You know, the flag of Lebanon today has a cedar tree on it uh, because of this. And, and cedar is a very important wood. It would have been a very important wood in the ancient Near East. Anybody, anybody know what's, what's special about cedar wood? Oh, Miles, you raise your hand. What's special about cedar? It doesn't rot. It's also insect resistant. So, you know, cedar, you know, we treat all our wood. Uh, they just use cedar, right? Uh, so cedar is very cool. It's, it's sturdy. It's long lasting. And the cedar trees of Lebanon were enormous. Okay. They grew up to 100 feet tall. They could be six feet in diameter. And not only were they huge, but there was this enormous forest in Lebanon of these trees. Uh, it would have been the equivalent, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of uh, Sequoia National Forest here, which, you know, some of you may know better as the Forest Moon of Indoor. Um, but I always think uh, images that are uh, Star Wars references are the ones I can relate to the most. Uh, but the point here is we're talking about a really huge forest with more massive trees than, than you can imagine. And so, again, we need to transport ourselves back in time to see the world uh, through ancient eyes. Now, we think of forests as kind of like these peaceful places. We go to retreat. We hike in. Uh, that's not the case in the ancient world. Forests were like dangerous places. They were dark. They were full of wild animals. And you could easily get lost. Remember, they didn't have compasses and GPSs back then. So um, fantasy novels actually get this right, okay? So if you think of some of your favorite fantasy novels, right? So like Lord of the Ring, there's Fangord Forest and Mirkwood Forest. So those are like not places you wanted to go to. Um, isn't, there a, uh, isn't there a bad forest in Harry Potter too, right? Yeah, what's it called? The the forbidden forest, yeah, the forbidden forest, right? Um, yeah, think about uh, there's the fire swamp and the Pritchett's Bride. You know, what lives there? Rats of unusual, rodents of unusual size, right? You know, so th- these are not places you went to unless you wanted to. Yet, even here, the Lord breaks these enormous cedar trees, you know, and shatters their trunks and splinters them with merely his voice. And, and the imagery gets like, totally bizarre in verse six. You probably heard it when I was reading this. You're like, what in the world? Uh, God makes Lebanon skip about like a calf. I mean, that's kind of weird. Um, it, it says, uh, it talks about uh, Syrian. Uh, Syrian is commanded to skip like a wild ox. So Syrian is actually another name for Mount Hermon, which was the tallest mountain in ancient Israel. Like that's the biggest place they knew. It, it is really tall. It's like 10,000 feet tall. So Mount Mitchell in North Carolina is uh, 6,600 feet tall. So Hermon, Mount Syrian here is 10,000 feet tall and God is making it skip. Um, it was uh it was known as the place like where, uh, so, so if you know in the Bible, like one of the bad guys in the Bible is the, the false god Baal, right? This is where he lives. He lives on this mountain. And, and you know, mountains in the ancient world, again, think about the ancient world. You know, just like forests, this wasn't places that like we hiked up and like, oh, this is a cool view. Mountains are like really dangerous. You didn't do it. 
Uh, the conditions were terrible in mountains. The the weather can change in an instant, right? You know, uh, and and you know there wasn't the local REI in ancient Damascus that you went to so you can properly prepare. You know, uh, probably all of you have had an experience like Miles and I went backpacking to Mount Rogers not too long ago, and it was like in July. We were supposed to have this like great perfect weekend. Huge storm came through rained all night if you're in a tent let me tell you storms are terrifying and uh it dropped down to like 30 degrees in the nighttime uh, luckily we were prepared for it but just think about it in the ancient world when you didn't have the kind of equipment and things like uh, we do today uh these were bad places in fact there's a there's a kind of interesting story um there's this italian poet uh you you may remember this from back in high school his name was petrarch and Petrarch is famous for being uh, known as the father of the Renaissance. Well, in 1350, he climbed a mountain in southern France. And the reason he did it was so he could see the view. And this was considered like an illustration of like what a modern man Petrarch was because he would actually like go to a mountain for no other reason than to see a view. You know, and the point of that is in the ancient world, you didn't do things like that. It was crazy. Now, here's the thing. That's not even the craziest thing about this verse, okay? Um, and, and, and this, I'm going to make this point in this sermon. It has like absolutely really no other larger point other than it's kind of cool. So this is just like bonus information. So so we read here, it says, Syrian is made to, uh, to jump like a wild ox. Okay, Any, anybody by chance here have a, a King James translation? Anybody have a King James translation? Just out of curiosity. Okay. Yeah. If you read what animal it says, it doesn't say wild ox in the King James. You know what it says? A unicorn. There's a freaking unicorn in the Bible. Yeah. And it's because uh, the King James actually uses this uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, and the word in Greek that it translates as unicorn is monocaris, which actually means one horn. Now, we don't really know what the original Hebrew animal is. Like anytime you read translations of animals or like plants in the Bible, it's like really hard because they use like totally different classification schemes. But we know from this Greek translation, which is like very old, it's like the third century B.C., Okay, uh, that it, it could have been something like a, a rhinoceros or a hippopotamus, which is like kind of cool. Now, now, most scholars today think that the word, um, sadly, it's not actually like unicorn. Um, most scholars today think that it refers to an auroch. Okay, has anybody heard of an auroch? Yeah, it's like an extinct cow species, but like not like Bessie on the farm. This is like a super, like a huge super cow. Anyway, that detail has no real theological significance okay but it's kind of awesome though right and let's not discount the awesomeness though because remember that's kind of the point of poetry okay uh to capture our imaginations and emotions and like right now you're like totally like a lot more interested in this song because i told you there's a unicorn in it right yeah and that's okay that's like good okay we want to see this as more than like Oh, some propositions and some statements. Um, 
you know, I'm going to quote, um, this is a, a quote from a, a theologian that I like quite a bit um, named Jürgen Moltmann. But he says for the ancients, for people in the ancient world, knowing something meant something different to us than, than to us. Knowing for the ancients meant knowing and wonder. I like that. I like knowing and wonder, you know, and, and, and so, you know, that's, that's part of what we're supposed to do in Psalms is like recapture this sense of wonder. So unicorns. Now we move to our last scene. This time we're in the wilderness and particularly we're told it's the Kadesh wilderness. So, so Mount Hermon is in the north of Israel the Kadesh wilderness is the desert that's south of Israel. And that's the wilderness the Israelites would have wandered around uh, after Egypt, before they enter Canaan. Okay, so it's kind of famous for that. And not a surprise, a wilderness is not a great place. Okay, so I had to kind of explain to you like why mountains and like the sea and like uh, forests were, were bad places. Okay, wilderness you get. Like it's not a place, you know, you don't go to a vacation in the, the wilderness. Uh, everything wants to kill you there. There's no food or water. No one lives there. The only people that uh, uh, are, are just passing through. And it's filled with like lots of dangerous wild animals. Okay, you know, some wild animals that live there. Things like jackals, wolves, leopards, and even lions. There were even lions that lived there. There were venomous snakes. Uh, there were cobras. Cobras lived in this wilderness, right? So... Yet even here, the Lord's voice is heard. And, and I think it's particularly interesting if you look at verse 9, right? Uh, the Lord brings forth the birth pangs of does, okay? And, and I think this image, uh, particularly of birth, you know, life coming out of this wilderness is, is really powerful here because it demonstrates that even in like the barren wilderness, right, uh, the Lord can bring fertility and life, okay? So, you know, again, this idea of like God bringing uh, uh, fertility in some places, infertile. So the psalm ends in verses 10 and 11. And here the Lord is enthroned. And that's what's appropriate. That's what's appropriate for someone who has conquered his enemies, who has conquered the dark forces. Uh, notice what the Psalms identifies as God's enemies here, though. You know, let's think back through the Psalms. What what does God conquer? You know, is he just like conquer some random people that are in his way so he can get more stuff? No. What God's going out and conquering is fear. What God's conquering is like death. He's carrying he's conquering death barrenness he's conquering disorder he's conquering chaos like all the bad threatening things these enemies aren't arbitrary uh they were they're partly revealing to us the character of god this is a god who is against these type of things okay he's against these bad things you know um and because the lord has conquered chaos it says the lord sits enthroned above the flood uh the lord's reign is forever uh, the idea is that the chaos has so been thoroughly defeated that there's no concern it could return. You know, uh, a lot of these ideas are borrowed from ancient mythology. There's even like, if you read anything about this psalm, the psalm is actually like really old. Okay, it, it, it be, we can tell from the language in it, this is like one of the earliest psalms. So we're reading a, a very ancient poem here. 
And uh, there's always this discussion that it was actually probably taken from like another culture and it's really about Baal or some other like ancient Near Eastern God. It's probably not. It, it, it's just using the same images. But in the ancient world, there was always this idea that like, um, yeah, chaos can be temporarily defeated, but it comes back. You know, they thought in cyclical terms, you know, just like the night always comes back, you know. But what this is telling us is that God has so thoroughly defeated the bad forces that, that they're not coming back. He's enthroned forever. And the result is the world is brought to peace. You know, so that's that great Hebrew word there, shalom. The world has brought brought to peace. And notice something. Um, you know, we just celebrated Christmas. And notice, notice what the point of this poem is, right? It starts with... Um, with uh, uh, the sons of God being called to grant God glory. Okay? And how does it end? With the Lord establishing peace. Right? So think of the words of the angels to the shepherds in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest. Right? Like, like, very, like right at the start of this point. And on earth, peace. You know, shalom. The angel's song to the shepherds is basically a truncated version of Psalms 129. So, that's cool, right? You know, but what do we do with this song? Okay, you know, most of us are not that concerned about storms. We don't worry about forests. I mean, you know, I have a... I have uh, an app for that. Unless you're crazy enough to, you know, wander around in the desert, we don't worry about the, the wilderness that much. And the answer is, like, this is what's great about poetry. We use these images as symbols, right? The symbols can, can open us to a bigger world. And that's the beauty of poetry. It uses something familiar. I mean, it uses stuff that was familiar to them. I mean, we're not so much uh, into the cedars of Lebanon, right? But, you know, I'm trying to, that, that's why I'm trying to show you what it would have meant to them so that now we view all these images as a symbol, um, to, you know, to make it familiar, just like it would have been to them. That's what we need to do here. Um, so let's think, uh, you know, how can we better relate uh, these symbols, these images uh, to, um, you know, to us? Now, so if you think about it, throughout this psalm, we've, we have journeyed uh, to what would have been to these ancient Israelites, the dark places, right? These are all the bad places. And, you know, I think it's particularly important that, as I noted a couple of times here, these aren't places of myth or fairy tale, you know, for them. Uh, these are not um, theoretical. These were like real places that were threatening, right? It wasn't abstract. It wasn't a theoretical. And so if you heard this psalm, you would have felt the danger. You know these are bad places, and you know they were places that were very real. And so that's, you know, one of the things about this psalm that I particularly like. It doesn't deny the reality of the world. You know, it says there are monsters, uh, the psalm fully acknowledges that the night is dark and full of terrors, right? You know, to borrow from, uh, from uh, Game of Thrones there. However, what this psalm also shows is that it can be defeated. The wrongs can be made right. The world can be prosperous and fertile. New life can come from even the wilderness. And hope can come to the scariest places. And all of this is a result of the act of, acts of the Lord. A Lord who wants to bring about prosperity and fullness and life and fertility to all these places. 
And what that means for us is that it means in our world, uh, which is, uh, you know, the, the reality is there's suffering, there's, there, there's bad things out there. There is the possibility of shalom. And it also means that there is no place that is God forsaken. We can't use that word. At no point in our history, in, in, in our story, in the story of the Bible, is that more dramatically expressed than at the cross. Remember what Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the cross is the ultimate symbol of the brokenness of the world. It's where despair and death are most vividly on display, where all these images that this song are talking about are, are, are magnified and kind of presented, where all the suffering of the world, all the bad things are encapsulated as an innocent man suffers at the hands of those whose only goal is power and oppression. The cross is the darkest of places, worse than the stormy seas, worse than the dark forest, and worse than the barren wilderness. And yet, just as in this psalm, God overcomes chaos in these places, God again overcomes on the cross. And so what this song is trying to tell us, and what the cross is trying to tell us, is that these places, these bad places, are merely opportunities for God to be glorified. The places are real. They suck. They're dangerous. They are scary. Suffering happens. But what makes this psalm a psalm of reorientation is the knowledge that the psalmist has gained. Probably hard-fought hard knowledge. Uh, hard-suffered knowledge. Uh, knowing that these places are not irredeemable. They are not beyond the power of God. And so one thing we can do is we can think about this psalm uh, not just as a place where all the God's... Uh, 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 strength is on display, we can also think of this as a song of resistance. Uh, it transports us to the divine realm, and we see the world through a different set of eyes, through the eyes of an angel. And we see the awesomeness of God, who is able to overcome merely through his voice. We see the Lord in all his majesty and glory. And despite this otherworldly setting, we see that there are real victories in real places. And what that means, and why this is a song of resistance, is because it gives us hope. We have hope that fear, despair, and barrenness do not have the last word. That ultimately, it is the Lord who rules over all. And therefore, that means we can join in the resistance to the darkness of this world. We can have hope and confidence that God has overcome and will overcome. And that means we, not, we need not be people who are fearful of the future. We need not be people who are cynical. It's a really tough thing to be, especially at this place in our, our time. It's really hard not to be cynical, but we need not be. We need not to accept the world as it is and its cruelty and sterility. We can go and proclaim into the world that this is not the world that God wants. 
that God is the enemy of fear, that he's the enemy of barrenness, that he's the enemy of darkness, and that God desires for all those, even in the stormy seas, the dark forests, and the barren wilderness, to experience life, to experience healing, to experience prosperity, and that we need not accept less than that. God has overcome all of these forces, and Christ on the cross has defeated the ultimate enemy, death itself. And so there is nowhere the glory of God cannot shine. And so we can join this psalm in singing a song of resistance to the world that we all too gladly have accepted that this is just the way it is. We don't need to do that. And so let us let this psalm and these images capture our imagination and so that we can together go into the world and practice resurrection.